Okay, Psalm 4. And uh, let's look into Psalm 4. It is difficult to know in all of these cases where the best point of beginning is. But there are so many connections between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. So many connections between them. For example, in Psalm um, 3, uh, verse 1, the psalm had mentioned foes, and the word that is translated foes, in some of your versions, it may be translated adversaries, in other versions, that word in 3.1 is the same word for distress in 4.1. The word many in 3 verse 1, 3 verse 2, 3 verse 6, that word many is found also in 4, 6. In 3, 3, it speaks of honor or glory. And that same Hebrew word is used in 4, 2. 3, 4 talked about crying to the Lord. And that same Hebrew word is used and translated call in 4, 1 and 4, 3. Then you see that he lay down and slept in 3, 5 and 4, 8. He lay down and slept. Same, same words that are used. Now all of these are vocabulary connections. All of these are vocabulary links. The last thing I'm about to mention here is not a vocabulary link, but a conceptual link. And so I'll kind of draw a line there to distinguish in 3.8, 3.8, you see uh, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in 4.8, the text emphasized that the Lord makes us dwell in safety. Same idea. Same idea, but not the same vocabulary words used here. So there are all kinds of connections between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. And some viewed Psalm 3 as a morning prayer after a good night's rest. For example, in 3 verse 5, Psalm 3 5, I lay down and slept, I awoke for the Lord sustains me. And they think this prayer was composed in the morning. This prayer was composed in the morning after the Lord uh, protected them. For eight may be an evening prayer when it says, In peace I both lay down and slept. And you, you, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So in four eight. 
it was the Lord uh, who was going to make him lie down and sleep. And this may be an evening prayer. What I'm trying to suggest by all of this, I may not know all the details about this. I don't. But the, uh, the ultimate arrangement of these songs is not accidental. There is some purpose in the way they are put together. My efforts here to try to say this is in Psalm 3 and this is repeated in Psalm 4 are an effort to to see that, to see that in the picture of the Psalms and to to know all the answers about the structure are certainly beyond me. But, but any question that you have about that right at the beginning? Anything? Okay, let me also mention this is just from Psalm 4. But here are words that appear twice in Psalm 4. <coughs> Words that appear more than once. The word call in 4.1 and 4.3. The word righteousness in 4.1 and 4.5. The word hear or hears in 4.1 and 4.3. The word heart in 4 4 and 4 7. Now, all of these from the same word, okay? Each of these cases. These last three cases I'm going to introduce, there is a connection, but there's a, it's not the exact same word. For example, the word used in verse 4 for bed is from the same root word used in verse 8 for slept. Um, It's in verse 8, it's the verb slept. In verse 4, the word kind of means a place of sleeping or therefore a bed. But it's the same basic word that's used. The word that's translated trust as an imperative in 4 verse 5 is the word translated in 4 verse 8 as safety. But it's the same Hebrew word that we're dealing with. And the word many in 4 verse 6, that used as a noun, but in 4 verse 7 as a verb, it means to abound. So, there are, in this brief psalm, we see some of these ideas repeated over and over. Now, I ask you, as we read Psalm 4, to look along closely in your translation, because there are going to be some differences at points, and feel free to ask questions about this, uh, particularly if you have a New International Version. Um, there, there are going to be some points where it's going to, to differ a little bit. 
Uh, but 4-1 begins, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O my God, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Silah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Silah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when grain and new wine abound. In peace, I both lie down and sleep, for you alone made me to dwell in safety. Okay? Now, preliminary. Do you have questions about anything there in Psalm 4? Questions about that? By the way, let me inform you of a decision I made the other day, and Brad, this particularly deal with you. Uh, We'll try to reserve singing for the end. And if you want to sing it a couple of times, I think that would help us. The reason I did that is because some of you listened on Zoom the other night and told me I was singing a solo. And so where I don't forget to turn my microphone off and then forget to turn it back on later, I just that's that's the uh, practicality of that decision. But um, Psalm 4, um, Psalm 4, as we try to, to drive home these words, you know, really what's interesting about this is the only kind of request or plea that you have in the psalm, but they're concentrated in 4.1 and maybe 4.6. Four, six. Several parts of this psalm are addressed to man. They're addressed to man. You see that in four verses two through five. In four verses two through five, it seems like that verses one and verses six through eight are addressed to God, but verse 2 through 5 are addressed to man. Now, I want to tell you one thing that makes this psalm difficult for me. It's not an extensive psalm or long psalm, but it is very difficult for me from the standpoint of who is being addressed. Who is being addressed when he is directing these words to man? It seems like in verse 2, he is speaking to opponents. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? He seems to be speaking to men there, but he seems to be speaking to enemies there. 
But when he gets later, for example, in verse 5, and he says, tremble and do not sin, is he speaking there of... Is he speaking to righteous people? Is he speaking to his enemies still? Is he addressing himself even? And if you look at verse 6, you will find in your translations quotation marks in different places. This is what the American Standard says, New American Standard. It says, many are saying, who will show us any good? Quote, unquote. Who will show us any good? And then his words are, lift up the light of your countenance. Some of your versions in verse 6 will have, quote, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord, unquote. Some of them have the quote ending there. But how much is it that others are saying? And who are these others? Who are these many? Are these many the enemies? Or are these many... Friends, those kind of things are hard to answer and I'm not going to try to be definitive. When you find a psalm, and many of them are, even maybe most of them are, somewhat generic. They don't tell us all the specifics of what they were going through. We don't find in this psalm what he was accused of. We don't find what he was accused of, what his enemies were saying exactly. You don't find any of these things. But some think that when a psalm is more generic like that, the purpose is to help us to be able to apply it to ourselves no matter what our circumstances are. That it helps us to apply these words to ourselves. Again, any question right here? Okay, let's begin with verse 1 as this is addressed to God. Again, look at your versions closely. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, part of this verse, which you will see differ in translations, is the second line of this, which says in the New American Standard, you have relieved me in my distress. You have relieved me in my distress. Do any of your versions have that as a request instead of a statement of God's past deliverances? Any of your versions have that? Okay, Jim, what does yours have? Okay, give me relief. Give me relief from my distress. And what translation is that? The NIV. Okay. What you find in the words answer in verse 1, and I'm going by the New American Standard here. 
But in 4 verse 1, the words answer, um, be gracious, and hear are all imperatives. And we talked about imperatives last week. Imperatives are, when we speak to one another, they may be a command. Close the door, or do this, or do that. Uh, When we are speaking to God, they are pleased to Him. Be gracious to me, O God. Answer me when I call. Hear my prayer. Those are all imperatives. Now, the verb which is translated here is a different form. It's more of a perfect in the original language which indicates completed action. And But some translations, like the NIV, and many writers defend this at this point, say, since all the rest are imperatives, answer me, be gracious to me, hear my call, that this should be viewed the same way. Give me relief from my distress. So it may be one of four pleas that he makes to God. On the other hand, it may be intentionally thrown in here or stated in a different way. You have set, you have relieved me in my distress. If the New American Standard and I believe the English Standard are correct in how they render this, which they are sticking more closely to the Hebrew text at this point. If they are correct in rendering this, there may be a purpose here. The purpose may be that he proclaims God's deliverances in the past in the midst of his pleas to God for help in the present and in the future. Isn't that what Philippians 4 tells us to do? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our request be made known to God in the midst of begging God to act in the present. He speaks of what God has done in the past for him. John? The Net Bible states it as a confidence of a future deliverance and says, Though I am hemmed in, you will lead me into a wide open place. Okay. Okay. And there are good reasons, too, for all that wording, hemmed in and wide open place, but it takes it as a future deliverance there. That John was stating, but still makes it more of a kind of a plea than a past event in that passage. But I'm trying to make a practical point too with this, whether it be a acknowledgement that God has answered, if it be an acknowledgement that God has answered, that it truly helps us when we are facing a crisis. To remember that God has delivered us in the past. And how many times do we forget that? And sometimes I say we. I may be saying particularly me. But I know often when a crisis seems so strong in the moment. We forget 
all He has done for us in the past. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now, some translations, and it may be the NIV here, it has it speaks of God as my righteous God or something to that effect. Uh, and the they're looking at the same text, and the question is whether this is describing a characteristic of God as righteous, or whether this is describing a God who vindicates us and proves that the the innocent uh, are innocent when they are falsely accused. Oh God of my righteousness, that may be the idea that's expressed. But as he makes these pleas, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He then begins to address man. And in verses 2 and 3, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call. Now verse 1 had made the plea, Answer me when I call. Hear my prayer. Now he affirms in verse 3, The Lord hears when I call to Him. But I want you to look at your text. Again, look at your text. What would you say it is that these sons of men are doing? What are they doing? How are they opposing the psalmist? Are they opposing David in a way uh, that is being described in the text? Now, the term sons of men, sometimes this particular word for men, sons of men, this particular word, not always but sometimes has the sense of men who are regarded as important. For example, this this Hebrew phrase is translated the high in uh, Psalm 49 and verse 2. In Psalm 62 and verse 9, it seems to refer to men of status. So maybe his enemies are men who are powerful, who are influential. Oh, sons of men, how long will my honor be turned into a reproach? Often in the Psalms, the phrase how long is used and directed to God. How long are these miserable conditions going to prevail? But here it is, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? He is not asking God how long. He is asking man, how long are you going to keep this up? How long are you going to do this? Now I want you to think in verse 2, what is his problem? What are these men doing? What does it mean that they love what is worthless and they aim at deception? We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But in verse 3, he said, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Now, I want to tell you something. Now, I'm sure I have read it before, but it apparently had not stuck with me. 
this word set apart it is a rare verb most every time most of the times it is found are in the book of Exodus now we have a lot of experts in the book of Exodus right here with us tonight and so this is a good question to ask but I write these verses on the board what separation is God making in each of these passages you're going to know it contextually think about John between Israel and Egypt you're right exactly right between Israel and Egypt the Lord says I'm going to set apart the Israelites and, and they will not have any swarms of insects and they will not have any livestock die and none of their firstborn will die the Lord is going to set apart and just as surely as God set apart the Israelites from the Egyptians in those events of the Exodus he says know that God has set apart the godly man just as surely as he made that distinction He is going to make a distinction between those who fear Him and those who call to Him and those who do not. No, the Lord has set apart the godly man. Now this particular word godly, it comes from a word, it comes from a word which is connected to one of the most important words in in Hebrew. The word loving kindness Loving kindness is the Hebrew word. It's kind of pronounced like kesed. And here is a form of this particular word. Who are the godly people? The godly people are people who have received the Lord's loving kindness and they have been shaped and transformed by that loving kindness. That's who the godly person is from this particular use of the word. The Lord has set apart. He's made a distinction between this person and the world. He has set this person apart, this godly person apart for himself. And I think that phrase is fascinating. God has chosen this kind of person for fellowship with Him. He has chosen us not just to pour out His blessings of grain and new wine, but He has chosen us for Himself. And the writer is confident of this and he says, the Lord hears me when I call. Now, what is it in verse 2 from the wording of your translation? What is it that you think these godly men are doing, or these men, sons of men are doing against David, against the godly man? What are they doing in this particular case? What is their role? What is their sin? I may not be asking that well. I may not be asking this. Are, are they possibly uh, claiming God is not with David? Okay, claiming God is not with him as we saw in in Psalm 3. Remember in Psalm 3 too, many are saying of, of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. 
And maybe they're saying that God is not with David. Maybe they're saying that because they are accusing David of some kind of wrong. They are turning his honor into shame. His honor into shame. Reminds me a little bit of Job about, you know, Job is wanting to seek an audience with the Lord. Uh, and so his his friends are like, Well, you must have done something wrong. Like the Lord is not with you. And it's like, no, I haven't done anything wrong. Yes. Exactly. And so what what John John and John are both pointing to and using illustrations from elsewhere in the Bible like Job that that maybe this is just accusations. David, you've sinned, you've done wrong and God is not with you and just like Job defends himself, you know, David knows these charges are not wrong, are are not right. Now, at the end of this verse, it says, "How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception?" Selah. Now, what does Jen, what does the NIV have at the end of verse 2? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Seek false gods. Some think the sin involved in this chapter is the sin simply accusing David, and I hope I spelled that correctly, Accusing David, maybe two S's, but but is the sin accusing David falsely? Is the sin worshiping false gods, or is it likely? I think both of the above. That is their sin. How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Now the reason, the reason that the NIV translates this as false gods is because sometimes that word has that significance. And in the notes that I sent out, I gave you some verses where it does have that significance. Um, You find example in Psalm 40 and verse 4, Psalm 40 and verse 4, how blessed is the man who trusts in his, in his, who made the Lord his trust, who has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. And the falsehood is believed to be the worship of other gods. It is clearer in some other versions, in some of these other verses, than it is there. What questions do you have? Anything? Yes, Chris. Could it be the accusation? I mean, something that's common today. If if you're trying to do something that's right, that makes you homophobic. That makes you yeah. uh, several things that are considered by society as evil. When society's values are not what they should be, when they are turned upside down, the result is innocent people will be accused of wrongdoing and wicked people will be promoted and celebrated. And um, and that is the situation in the illustrations that you give there, Chris, when we think about God's standard of sexuality and morality, which used to be at least kind of agreed to, if not always lived, 
people understood that yes, there is an ultimate right and wrong in these matters. And so yes, I, I think that too we can see how these words could be uttered by godly people today. But no, just as surely as then, the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. And the Lord hears when we call. Yes? Funny question. Uh-huh. Um, when I read that, set apart the godly man for himself, is he actually separating the sinners from the godly people? A godly man. I mean, is sinners not involved with this? Or okay. No. Yes. No. It's not a. That's, that's a very understandable question. There are passages um, where the term sinner is used in such a way that it encompasses us all. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are other times where that phrase is used that make a clear distinction between people. For example, in Proverbs, all the time, you will see the distinction between the righteous person and the sinner. Between the godly person and the one who doesn't fear God. And so, yes, he is making a distinction. In contrast to these sons of men who love what's worthless and who aim at deception whether that be false words or whether that be false gods, in contrast to them is the godly person who has been shaped by God's love both in what they have experienced and in how they treat others. So yes, he is making, he's making a definite distinction because God makes a distinction in such cases. God makes that distinction. Yes. Yeah, that uh, verse 3 there reminds me of the end of Psalm 1, too, that sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous, and the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Yes, that's right. Psalm 1 6 was a good showing of those two different ways and two different paths. Psalm 1 6 and uh, the seriousness of, of each path. Verse 4. Tremble and do not sin. Now this could be addressed to enemies who are, who are speaking evil words and David has some advice for them in verses 4 and 5. It could be that this is information, this is instruction given to godly people and even to himself in the midst of a difficult situation. Tremble. That word tremble is used when um, Joseph sends his brothers back in Genesis 24 verse uh, Genesis 45 verse 24 and says, "Don't quarrel among yourselves." It's sometimes used for the mountain shaking when the Lord appears. It's used that way in Psalm 18. But tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Tremble and do not sin. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation has the words, be angry and don't sin. You recognize those words? 
Ephesians 4.26. You know, Paul picks up the, this word from the Greek translation. Be angry and do not sin. Not a command to be angry, even though this is imperative. But it's a statement. Be angry, but don't let it lead you into sin. And meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Maybe this is just an encouragement. Whether it be said to those who are enemies or to those who are seeking to be godly. Reflect upon your bed about your activity. Reflect upon what's right and what's wrong. Reflect upon what you should do. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Be still. Be quiet. Ponder your ways. And offer sacrifices of righteousness. God was called the God of my righteousness in 4 verse 1. And now in 4 verse 5, offer sacrifices of righteousness. Sacrifices that flow from a life that is given in submission to God. Sacrifices that are offered according to God's instruction. All of these things are involved. But offer sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Put your confidence in Him. In verse 6, many, just like we saw in in Psalm 3, many, many in verse 6 are saying, who will show us any good? Now, again, who is speaking? Are these many who are saying who will show us good? Are they the enemies who are scoffing at God? Are they the people who are seeking to serve God, who are discouraged and broken? Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Lift up the light of your countenance. Let me ask you where these words are from. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. Where those words fail? In the songbook. Yeah, in the songbook. I thought somebody would say that. But yes, in Numbers first, Numbers six, and our songbook was written after the book of Numbers. And uh, but Numbers six, verses twenty-four through twenty-six. And this was the blessing that the priest pronounced upon the people when they came out, for example, after offering the incense. Probably when Zacharias in Luke 1 comes out after offering the incense. They're expecting him to offer the blessing. And he comes out and says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Of course, in that case, he could not speak, but that would have been the blessing that he would have offered. Now, it's significant to ask... Where does that quotation end? I know some of these questions I'm asking can seem detailed and can seem without application. And some of them may be. 
this one, you can see the application of readily. Because if that question ends at verse 6, who will show us, if it ends at the middle of verse 6, who will show us any good? Well, their concept of what's good may be different than David's concept of what's good. What David is asking for is that God's face shine upon them. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Many are wondering who's going to bring us good. Lift up the light of your countenance. You have put gladness in my heart more than when grain and new wine abound. Now, we stated earlier the word many, a noun in verse 6, many are saying... Who will show us any good? But the word abound at the end of verse 7, that is the verb form of that same word. Just as many are asking, God is giving much new grain, new wine and grain. He's causing it to abound. One of the most joyful times at the year is harvest when you bring in food. I've noticed something, and this has really just come to me lately. But there's a certain part of me that every time, whether we stop by the grocery store and come home, or whether Christy goes to the grocery store and comes home, there's a wave of enthusiasm (laughs) that I experience because of that. And the very thought that we are blessed with so much is a cause of joy and a cause of thanksgiving. But the greatest cause of joy and thanksgiving, and I know I reckon I speak from a position of plenty. I speak from a position of prosperity. I can't imagine what day-to-day life is like in Sierra Leone. And may God bless Dan so that he's able to continue to keep preaching there. But the greatest joy we have is in God Himself. You put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Some are looking for good But the good they're looking for, it may be just simply the agricultural goods. It may not be the joy of the Lord. In verse 8, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. As we pointed out earlier, The word translated safety in verse 5, verse 8, is the form of the word trust. It's from the same root as the word trust in verse 5. We are called to trust in the Lord in verse 5. And the Lord promises to make us dwell in safety. Now, I, I will say, we talked about what the problem was. was. Was this a situation where they are worshiping false gods? We asked that question. 
verse 8 to me might lend a little credence to this idea that they're worshiping false gods. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone. And that's what the text says. You alone, O Lord. You're the one who makes me dwell in safety. And you alone are. It's not the other gods. It's not the other things that people serve. Did the people in the Old Testament ever attribute their blessings to their idols? Yes. Remember in Hosea 2 verse 8? Hosea 2 verse 5? Hosea says, Their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them, has acted shamefully. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. They are attributing all these blessings to their idols, their gods, their lovers. They give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. They give me all of these things. God says in Hosea 2 verse 8, She does not know it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. And they lavished on her silver and gold, and lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for the bales. But the point, God alone is the one who gives this. I want to tell you what my overall impression of this psalm is. My overall impression of Psalm 4 is Psalm 4 stresses the fact that in God there is joy. Verse 7 There is peace and safety in verse 8. And there's some very interesting passages in the Old Testament that use that word safety. He is God who vindicates the righteous in verse 1 when we are falsely accused. He is the one who vindicates us in verse 1. He is the God of our righteousness. Uh, He is the God who hears when we pray. In verse 3, all of these things are things that are true of God. Our security, our hope, our confidence, our trust is in Him. It is in Him. And I think that's the overall impression of this psalm. John? Do you think we're to understand that the distress has been removed at the end of the psalm? It's not specifically said. It may be. It may not have been. Um, Some psalms you can look at and they have been apparently. Uh, Other psalms you look at And you just can't tell. Sometimes we serve God and He takes our problems away. Sometimes we serve Him in the midst of the problems and He gives us a new perspective and a new joy. 
And so it's just difficult to say. It's difficult to be precise about very many things about the circumstances of this psalm. So that's a good question. Good question. What other things do you have? Let me read it one more time from the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, Silah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and you wine abound. In peace I both lie down and sleep. In you alone, O Lord, you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Now, if you don't have any more questions, uh, I will go ahead, leave this microphone on, and uh, let Brad take control of it and uh, teach us this song with Psalm 4. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for uh, your uh, good attention and your interest and your good questions. And uh, let's see if we can let this song drive this home and I did not get a copy of that. I need to see who needs a, a copy of that. I just send those out. Just stand up please.